Um, the last time I was here would have been about three years ago, and kind of over in that side there, as I kind of said a bit about myself, um, I grew up in the western portion of New York State, uh, which is where Ni Niagara Falls is, um, if you've seen pictures of that. And I grew up as far, see people say, hear me say I grew up in New York, and they think, ooh, the city. I grew up as far away from New York City as Wellington is from Auckland, like almost to the mile. Um, and that's just one state. America's big. Um, and, and so as I'm talking about, somebody in the corner actually was an exchange student in the podunk farm town I grew up in. Y'all remember that, some of us? Like how, anybody here in, from Springville, New York? No? Lightning don't strike twice. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, you are in the midst of a series, maybe lightning strikes twice. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to kind of go along with that one. Um, so <laughs> all y'all are in the midst of a series um, on being led by God. And that's really cool. It's a really important thing. Like being led by God, um, human existence, Christian existence, is a what we might call responsive thing. We, we respond to the movement of God towards us. Um, and that's what it means to be led, right? There is a leader, and that's not us, and we are led by God. Um, and one other way that we can talk about or ask these questions about what it means to be led by God is just to ask a very simple question. Why do you do the things that you do? You get out of bed in the morning. Why do you go and do the things that you do? Who are you becoming and why? How might we frame that in relationship to the existence of God? And that's just another way to ask the question, what does it mean for us to be led by God? When I got out of bed, I've become someone, I, I've got two boys, they are 11 and 12. As I father and as I parent them, how do I do it? Why do I do it in that way? And how do I understand that to be an extension of my relationship with God? How am I led? So those who know me um, know that, or who have been in uh, some of the classes I get to teach, might know I've got a three-phrase thing that basically sums up all of life, and we're going to talk about that today. And we're going to do audience participation. I didn't warn you. Surprise! All right, so, um, and the phrase is this. All of, all of Christian life is wrapped up in these three sentences. God does stuff. That stuff matters. So we do stuff. Okay? So, us over here, God does stuff. In a minute, we'll say that out. This stuff matters. And then together, so we do stuff. All right, ready? God does stuff. This stuff matters. So we do stuff. Yeah, first time. Um, so this is really big. Because when we talk about being led, and we talk about our life before God, it is a product of encounter. God does stuff in our midst, and I'm one of us, so with me. And when we encounter God, we do stuff because of that, right? And so often when we talk about being led, we talk about it in terms of uh, God speaking to me. What is God saying to me so that I do something that draws forth new life or new things that I do? And so we do the God does stuff, so we do stuff without a whole lot of thinking about why it matters. And that's right and fitting. We call that obedience. God, you know, in the narratives of Scripture, God comes to Noah and says, build an ark. And he goes, okay, builds an ark. 
doesn't think too much about it. Comes to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to move over here to Canaan. He says, okay. The apostle Paul's riding on a horse. Jesus appears to him, says, go to Damascus. Okay. So the, this is really important. The fitting response of us to a direct encounter with God is obedience. We do. We are creatures of the creator. When God speaks to us, we do things. We just do it. Okay. Um, that is the minority experience. Even within the biblical narrative, the direct encounter of the free maker of all things to humanity does happen, but it's not very often. Most of our lives are lived in the day-to-day stuff where we're living in reference to what God has done. And even in the narratives of scripture, we see that most of the time, it's the church or the people of God working it out. Alfred Hitchcock was a, uh, a movie director from, if you're old like me, you might, or have sat in a film class, you've been able to watch some of his films. He very famously said that drama is life with the dull bits cut out. That movies are life, but with all the dull bits cut out. And what we have very often is the dull bits cut out, even in the scripture narratives. We've got 33 years of Jesus's life with all the dull bits cut out. But the truth is, is that life is in the dull bits. And what I want us to talk about for today, or to consider about what it means to be led in the dull bits. In the times when maybe God hasn't been talking much. Because the truth is, is that um, it's okay if God doesn't talk a lot. So much of this notion of being led by God comes with these presuppositions. How often should I expect to hear from God? If you grew up in a kind of space where I did, it was presuppose that this would be almost a non-stop line of chatter from God to me. And if something, if I wasn't having that, something was wrong with me. We introduced this great word called blockage. Anybody hear that one? What's my spiritual blockage such that I'm not hearing from God as often as I think I ought to? Um, or what if I'm just in a dull bit? And And one of the things that's really interesting is actually the story of scripture, the narrative of scripture, is that most of life is the dull bits. And there's a pattern that repeats itself from the Hebrew scriptures into the New Testament about the way by which the people of God are led by God. And so I'll start out and I want to talk a little bit um, about Torah. I know, right? You're like, yes! How long has it been since I've had a good conversation about Torah? 20 minutes, because I love it so much. (laughs) Right? (laughs) So for those of you who may not be familiar, Torah is the the name of the collected five books, uh, first five books of scripture, um, as part of the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew... um, uh, a word for the, uh, what we would call the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. Um, and the Tanakh is uh, Torah, ooh, can I remember them? Ketavim and Aravim? Uh, so it's anyway, um, the law, the prophets, and the writings. 
And the law is Torah, okay? And in this, what we have is a, a combination of narrative about what God does for Israel, but then the other half, what we might call the moral claim, that when God does stuff and that matters to us, this is what our response is, right? And so in Torah, we have the story of the most important thing for the Jewish, um, for the Jewish faith, which is the exodus, that God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, heard the cries of his people and with a long and outstretched arm redeemed them from slavery in Egypt and brought them to a promised land. Now, there's a whole lot of complex things that go into that narrative. Uh, Rose told me I only have an hour and a half to talk. So, <laughs> um, so I, but I'm, I'm going to have to go past uh, some stuff that is thorny. And I don't want it to sound like it's not. Just because I'm not giving it the airtime it should have. But the redeemed, uh, and they come to Sinai, and there God uh, gives to Moses the way, Torah, the way of being that is fitting for what God has done. And in this, we have, um, in the story of Exodus, is the, the narrative, and then the giving of the law, Torah, and then we have the Ten Commandments in there. One of the other books is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy just gets its name for Deuteronomos because everything's better in Latin. It is, although that's Greek. Um, but, but everything, so, so it's the second giving of the law. And so here what we have is some really famous passages of, of Moses telling to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall worship the Lord with all of your uh, soul and your mind and your strength. Becomes the greatest commandment, and I'm going to read it because it's really kind of important. It's called the greatest commandment by Jesus, but Jesus isn't coming up. He's not developing this on his own. It was actually everybody knew that it was the greatest commandment. All the rabbis at the time would have said that. Um, but again, I only have so much time. I can't talk about that. Um, oops. In this, we have Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you are a pious Jew, even living today, you would pre pray this prayer three times a day, morning, noon, and night, as the thing around which your life spins. Sorry if somebody's listening to this on podcast and I don't have my microphone close. So this is what is called the Shema. And the Shema is called that because the Hebrew uh, for hear, O Israel, is the first words, right? So it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words I'm commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Shall love the Lord your God, again, with all, all of you, heart, soul, mind, strength. These commands that I'm going to be giving you now, tie them as a symbol on your hands, wear them as an emblem on your forehead. How you think, what you do, leave them as a sign on your doorposts. As the way in which you live as a family, again, it's not, you know, back in those days, it's not like, your house, it's Stefano, lives in the big compound. So the way you live, the way you think, the way you raise your children, the way the family exists, all in reference to 
God's mighty work of liberation and freedom from Egypt. And this is why it's the greatest commandment. Not because you're supposed to have a fuzzy feeling in your tummy toward the divine when you think about how nifty God is. Although that's not bad. But it's the greatest commandment because everything you do, everything you are becoming, not just you, your family, your fano, everything, live in response to what God has done for you. Because God did stuff, and that stuff matters, so we all do stuff. And that is why it's the greatest. That's, and that's why all everything else falls from that. Upon this, all the law and the prophets hang. So when Jesus says this, and this um, uh, Mark's account is great, uh, the, the, the scribe of the Pharisee is like, hey, yeah, you gave the right answer, Jesus. Like, yeah, because everybody, that's why it's great. Now, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I hate to burst our bubbles, but that does not mean have a warm fuzzy when you talk to people that are, live next to you or that you don't know. That phrase comes from Leviticus chapter nine, uh, yeah, 19, verse 18. I mean, you're all like, yeah, of course, duh, Joe, don't waste our time. <laughs> and, and this is the heart of what's called the holiness code. Leviticus can be some fairly dry reading at times, um, unless you know that this is like, this is the blood, guts, and fire of the way by which God's people are supposed to be set apart for God to use, which is just another way of saying holy. Something is holy when God sets it apart to be used for his purposes. And so God's holy people, or God's people are to be a holy people, and that has twofold bit to it. One is a sense of moral purity. That there is, and that we all get this, there is a dark place in our souls that we could live from. And God just says, don't, don't do that. That's not how we are used by God. And the other one is this, uh, that we are supposed to have eyes to see and ears to hear the plight of the vulnerable in our midst. The shorthand for that is the widow, the orphan, the alien. That there are vulnerable people and that we take care of them. And, and in Deuteronomy, we have this, is that we do this because we remember that God saved us while we were yet slaves. That while we were in slavery, God heard our cries and redeemed us while we were. So, don't forget that. And let that truth be what compels you to be a certain kind of person in the world. Have eyes to see and ears to hear the cries of others. And that when you come and you are present with them and you see them and you care for them, the redemption of God arrives for them too. And so this is why it's the second greatest commandment. Everything you do, everything you are, live in response to God's exodus, his redemption of slavery. And what does that look like? Become people who are of a certain moral quality and who have eyes to see and ears to hear the needs of others around. And this is like in Luke's telling of this, then the rabbi uh, in the language is, well, so the, the scribe who asked him, wanting, feeling kind of dumb, because you ask a dumb question, you get a dumb answer, because everybody knows what the greatest commandments are. So when he says it, and Jesus is like, well, duh, love God, love neighbor. Um, he's like, well, well yeah, well, pfft. so who's my neighbor? Which is a question that actually nobody would be asking, because the neighbor isn't an important part of that verse. It's rather to be holy. And so he's like, oh, now that's an interesting question. Let me tell you about the neighbor. 
and he goes into that. So the point is this. In the dull bits of life, Israel already had this notion. Who are we becoming? When, when we wake up, what does it mean to be led by God? We are on a journey to love God and love our neighbors. Does that make sense? So we should be unsurprised when the pattern repeats itself in reference to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which is precisely what the Apostle Paul does. And so in, when he's writing this letter to this church in Rome, a bunch of people that he's not met yet, he just knows them by reputation, he writes to them and gives his kind of full um, unpacking of the significance of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we have this in our New Testament called the Book of Romans. And the core aspect of the Book of Romans is that he's drawing on this notion of liberation and freedom from slavery. But it's not slavery to Egypt anymore, but rather he's understanding this as a slavery to um, a bondage to ourselves and a bondage to this way that we naturally live from the dark place and that Jesus has freed us from that. Yeah, yeah come on, that's, that's, that can go more. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah! Like that, we have hope that the, the ugly that's inside us is not the full story. And so we should be unsurprised when that pattern repeats itself in the New Testament, in language of slavery, in language of holiness, that still what we might call the moral claim of the God upon us is that we live our lives as if Jesus of Nazareth really rose from the dead, and that maybe matters to us. And ways that that matters is, is like, for real, we live like it happened. Like there is hope. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that he started. And like, dude, if you think your church is messy sometimes, these guys were bananas. Um, I have never once been in a church where we had somebody who was having sex with his mother um, but this is what he's addressing to the church in Corinth. He actually writes like, hey, I've heard some people are having uh, sex with their father's wife. Stop that. Why, wh what's, <laughs> like, as a parent, I've got like, I've had a number of times that I've had to say to my sons, like, why do I have to say this out loud? But don't put your face in your brother's butt. Stop. <laughs> and I actually had to say that. Um, <laughs> like, what are you doing? So this is what the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Like, why do I have to say out loud, stop having sex with your mom? But apparently I do, so stop it. <laughs> Who said the Bible was boring? <laughs> 25 years of pastoral ministry. Never once have I come up in a church with that one. Um, so he's writing this, his second time he's writing to this church. And he says this, um, for if we are beside ourselves, and he's talking about the, the way by which he and the other apostles are passionate in the way that they're doing and living um, and telling and sharing the message of Jesus. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are in our right minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on. Ooh, maybe we say the love of Christ leads us. The love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and who was raised for them. So the cool thing about this passage, and I'll keep reading in a minute, is 
I want us to listen to how he's unpacking that God did stuff. And he's going to talk about why that stuff matters. And then he's going to start talking to them about what kind of stuff is right or fitting that they would do. And he starts out, so one died for all. And therefore, all have died. See, the cool thing about this is Jesus of Nazareth, um, he rose from the dead. Believe it, don't believe it. Honestly, I don't care. I mean, I kind of care, but like whether or not you buy it doesn't matter. It's happened. And it's happened, the freedom, the liberation is for everybody. And it's not because I want it to be, but because it is. So because he died one for all, all have, but then we have hope in life afterwards. And that is here for you now. I don't know what your story is, but I want you to know that that is here for you now. For all. Not for some. Not for those who pray the prayer. Not for all means all. And even, I looked it up in the Greek, pantanta still means all. And he died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and who was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. Um, some of us who may have become, uh, who, who maybe came to faith a little later on in life might have first encountered Jesus as like this really wise prophet. And so he was a guy who had these really great things to say, and he was, you know, basically was, hey, don't be a turd to other people, and that makes God like you more. Um, and so he's talking about, we might have once regarded Jesus in this way, but we don't anymore, because we know that there's something bigger than that. There was a resurrection that happened that did something. So while we may have regarded him from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there's new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So here's the stuff we do. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our rebellion against him, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ. Oh, man, since God is making his appeal through us. Now, how cool is that? God is making the appeal that others would know that this stuff has been done, not by direct encounter, but by the people, by us. So I entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I'll end on that one. Um, ambassadorship is a thing that I get, I got a lot more of when Donald Trump was president because everybody came to me and asked like hey what is up with Americans and Trump like I know like I've been in New Zealand almost 10 years now but I get everybody you hear me talk and you think oh here's an ambassador for America let me ask you all the American questions that I don't know about yet and we are ambassadors for Christ and that message that we bring is the message of be reconciled to God because God has already reconciled with us. Again, believe it, don't believe it. Jesus rose from the dead. One died for all. It's done. It doesn't matter if you pray the prayer. Praying the prayer is kind of a key part of it, but it doesn't depend on it. 
being led, urged on by the love of Christ. And again, so the other cool thing about this is it's not really clear if the love of Christ is Jesus's love for us or our love of Jesus. In English, it still kind of works the same way, and, and in the Greek it does too. But um, like the love of Christ urges us on. Are we led by Jesus loving us? Are we led by our love of Jesus? Kind of both. And because life in the dull bits is actually most of the time I do the things that I do because I love Jesus. Because I know a truth that I believe down to my toes that God did something in him. In his life, death, and resurrection that I am baptized into. And that that truth, that reality draws forth a life that is loving God and loving neighbor. And I am led by God in the dull bits. Every single day. Now, there may be times when God comes and speaks to me directly, and it has happened. Not often. And that's okay. Because I'm led by God every day of my life. Because Jesus rose from the dead. I'm baptized into that truth, and the love of Christ urges me onward. And so, that's my word for you guys tonight. That as you consider what it means to be led, there may be some of us here who don't get the word from God too often. There may be some of us who get lots of them, and that's awesome. Like, like that, that's, we are all individuals. Um, my journey was learning that it's okay if I don't hear from God lots. And that doesn't mean that I'm not led by God in my day-to-day life. Sometimes we all live in the dull bits. Amen. Oh, yes, and I am now to invite, in a very seamless way, that is quite natural, <laughs> the worship team to come up and to lead us in worship.